This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. I am Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Daniel Ron about the science behind behavior change and how there is a lot more to treatment adherence than just telling patients what to do. We will discuss patient-related barriers to implementing PT treatment and effective strategies for addressing them. Additionally, we explore the factors influencing behavior change and what adjustments may be needed in therapists' behaviors. Our conversation also covers engaging and educating patients on the importance of exercise adherence, incorporating technology in this process, and much more. If this topic sounds interesting, please stay tuned and keep listening. Dr. Dan Ron, our guest, is a retired medical officer from the U.S. Army and currently serves as a professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. He directs the Musculoskeletal Research in Primary Care Program at Brooke Army Medical Center. Dr. Ron holds a master's in physical therapy and a doctor of science degree from Baylor University, a doctor of physical therapy degree from Temple University, and a PhD from the University of Newcastle. He completed a manual therapy fellowship at Brooke Army Medical Center and a research postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Utah. Dr. Ron has received numerous awards including a Lifetime Research Award from the U.S. Army Medical Specialist Corps, two Rose Awards for Excellence in Research from the APTA, and the Eugene Michaels New Investigator Award from the APTA. With over 150 publications and more than 20 million in competitive research grant funding, His research focuses on identifying and implementing optimal care pathways for musculoskeletal pain disorders. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. PT ProTalk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Fitter First, your first choice for the best Canadian-made rehab and fitness products since 1985. Systems for PT, the do-anything, anytime EMR. Systems for PT develops systems for clinics so you can focus on your patients. Go to systemsforpt.com to schedule a demo today. Have you heard of remote therapeutic monitoring? Does it sound complicated and hard to implement at your practice? It doesn't have to be. Sarah Health is revolutionizing RTM, making it straightforward for your practice. From easy onboarding to hassle-free billing, they cover it all. Hi, Dan. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So let's start talking about yourself and your career first. Sure. So a little bit about myself. Um, I, uh, I've been, most of my career has been in the military. And so I started off my uh, career actually before college, spending time as an enlisted person in the, in the military, in the Marines. And I got out and uh, used that, uh, the uh, military uh, stipend, the GI Bill, to go to um, uh, undergrad. And then I 
found out about this great Army Baylor program um, that uh, one of the reasons I was drawn to it is because it would cover all my, uh, you know, they would, it would cover all my costs. And I went into uh, the world of uh, being a military physical therapist in the Army. And that really opened up my world to a lot of things. I did a lot of unique um Unique jobs there. I, I deployed to Iraq for a year as a physical therapist for the uh, one of the brigade combat teams in the 4th Infantry Division. Um, I got to go to airborne school as a physical therapist and uh, learn how to jump out of airplanes, which was uh, unique. And uh, did some humanitarian missions like down in Paraguay. And uh, so it's a very, very diverse setting. Um Lots of freedoms, I guess, that we didn't typically um, enjoy in the in the civilian side in terms of how we can manage patients, direct access, things like that. But I learned a lot along the way. And then that led me to uh, a research career. So, you know, I think the, the more you practice in the clinic, the more you um, understand or identify the ways that uh, we could probably improve, you know, the frustrations with care and uh, the way things you wish wish could go better. And so I think as a researcher, that starts to empower you a little bit to start asking questions and, you know, what can I do to help address some of these problems and how can we answer some of these questions ultimately so we can change practice, change policy. And then uh, eventually I became a full-time researcher. I retired from the military about six years ago, but I still do research full-time in uh, the military health system, it's really the only setting I know. I think I would be uh, a little bit lost on the on the civilian side with all the insurance things and 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 how all of that works. I would I would be a little bit behind on that. But um, injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, are a huge problem in the military. They're the number one cause of um, our sol- of us losing our soldiers every year. You know, over fifty percent of them get injured every single year. And so, um, and that, that costs a lot of money. It's, it's a big problem. We don't really know how to manage it very well. So a lot of my research focuses on, uh, trying to prevent the effects of those injuries and then also trying to, uh, come up with interventions and, and treatments that, uh, can maybe help mitigate the effects of some of those injuries. Very nice. What a nice career. So how, how many years did you spend in the military? I did 20 years in the military. Um, 20 years is, is the minimum you can spend before you can then retire from the military. Um, so um, I just reached a point at my career at 20 years where I could have stayed in longer, but um, I have three kids also, and it starts to get a little bit challenging when you're moving every two or three years because you do move a lot. And so as you can imagine, as the kids get older, it's harder and harder for them, I think, to always have to be moving to a new place, new friends. And so I think um, it was just a good time to, to, to settle down and, and give, allow them to, to settle down and, and make friends and, and not have to worry about moving again. So Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we jump to our topic, I'm just curious to ask about your experience in Iraq. You said that you spent a year there. So would you yeah. just talk briefly about it? Sure. So I spent, uh, I was probably had been a physio about maybe three years and I went over there. Uh, so what happened, this was very early in the war, uh, over there. And so what they had found is that a lot of the patients, uh, most of the injuries are not 
combat related injuries. The large majority, nine out of every 10 injuries are just regular musculoskeletal injuries, people spraining their ankles, you know, uh, tweaking their backs, hurting their shoulders with all the things that when you have several hundred thousand people there and all the labor they have to do, you have a lot of injuries. Well, in wartime, a lot of the regular doctors become what they call field surgeons. And you might not have any background in musculoskeletal or orthopedic conditions, but now you're assigned as a as a, uh, uh, a physician that's out there managing the soldiers. So sometimes you have pediatricians and internists and all of these that are managing uh, a, a caseload uh, that they don't always see all the time. And so a lot of patients were, uh, soldiers were getting sent back because maybe they have numbness and tingling in their feet and the closest MRI is Germany. Uh, so they would send them out. And so what, anyways, all that to say what they thought was let's put physical ther- therapists further forward on the front lines so that they can manage a lot of these injuries with a lot of the soldiers. So I was stationed on a little forward operating base where a lot of the, uh, Infantry uh, soldiers would go out on their missions during the day and come back there. And we had a little aid station and I would just, you know, treat their, the back pains and ankle sprains and their uh, shoulder pain, just the things that, that would go, go on there. I could manage those as much as I can trying to triage and, you know, only sending out the more serious or more severe cases that maybe needed to go up uh, the echelon. So the idea was for it to just be more efficient and to have somebody, you know, individuals that were more, uh, more of experts in managing musculoskeletal conditions be there at the front line. So they started putting physical therapists with all of the brigades, uh, across Iraq. So it was very interesting. I was in a, uh, it was probably one kilometer square and uh, I was there for, uh, for a full year, uh, at the aid station, soldiers would come and go and, um, we would just treat them. My, my unit was split up across uh, about three different locations. So I would fly in a little helicopter from uh, FOB to FOB to uh, uh, different weeks to see any of the patients that were there and just offer my help and, and services as much as I, as I could. So uh, a very unique experience and one that I learned a lot from. So That's awesome. Very interesting. And did you find that that was more efficient, having the PTs? Yeah, I think there was a you know, the, the other doctors there, they really, uh, they really were happy in the aid station that I was at for the entire year, every single visit where someone came in, it was two doctors, two physicians, assistants, a dentist, a psychologist, and myself. So there was seven of us there and we counted every single visit that came in during that year. And out of the seven people, for physical therapy, I saw 43% of all of the visits that came in for seven people. So I was very, oh, very wow. busy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think they were they were very happy to, uh, along with all the other physical therapists that were at other locations, I think uh, it was definitely value added. Very interesting. Okay, now let's jump to our topic. Um, so... We know that patients' adherence can influence the treatment effectiveness, right? So if they're complying with home exercise program and especially chronic pain patients. So what are common patient-related barriers to the implementation of a PT treatment? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know that we, that we have the full answer for this, but you know, I'll just, what I'll share is just kind of how, how my thought process has evolved over the years. I think, uh, I think adherence to anything, much less uh, an exercise program, has a lot of factors that we don't always think about, or maybe new new physical therapists, because you learn things in school. We didn't, at least when I went through school, we didn't really spend a lot of time trying to understand human behavior. Human behavior is complex, and human behavior, um, it's not as easy as just telling someone something. And so I think we as physical therapists, um, or just as people in general, just think that if I tell someone something that, that, um, that knowledge will then change into action. And so, um, we don't understand the complexity that comes with actually changing behavior, which is really complex. So we spend a lot of time educating patients thinking that that's the gap. You know, I think our biggest error is thinking that there's a knowledge gap. And if we fill that knowledge gap, that's, that, you know, that's the, the golden egg right there. And so we just have to tell people if they have knowledge, then they'll act differently. So, but we know that we know that people that smoke don't, it's not a knowledge gap. I don't think anybody that smokes doesn't know that it's bad for them. They just do it anyways. And we probably find ourselves doing variations of that as well. Like maybe we know eating this or drinking that isn't necessarily good, but sometimes we do it anyways. And so I think most patients probably would agree that the exercise is is good for them, but um, just having them agree that it's good is not the only thing. There's a lot of, 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 of factors that then come into whether that behavior actually plays out. And so some of those are socio uh, economic, uh, you know, factors. Maybe if you're just really, really busy, you're a single parent you just don't have much time. You have other things to prioritize. Um, maybe you think it's efficient, but um, beneficial, but you, you know, you just have other things that take up your time. I think, um, I truly think that a lot of patients think it's good. They go to bed at night thinking, oh shoot, I forgot to do my exercises. Um, I'll do them tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and they get busy and so every night you go to bed and you always mean to do the right thing, but in, unless you sit down and plan out how you're going to change your behavior, like it takes some planning, it doesn't just happen, you know, happen. We talk about smart goals. We talk about creating uh, a structure for changing behavior. Like pe- patients need more structure Uh, Those that struggle with this need a little bit more guidance to help set up a plan where they can actually do something. And I don't, at least I wasn't very good at at sort of helping to set that up, uh, you know, when I first started practicing. And so I think um, there's a lot of barriers. And and the first thing we can do is just admit, I guess, or realize that behavior is very complex and that it isn't just a knowledge gap. So just by telling people things doesn't mean that they're actually going to start changing their behavior and doing things. Even if it's something that's good for them and beneficial, uh, behavior is a lot more complex than that. And what do you think us as PTs, what can we do to help our patients? So is there any practical advice? (laughs) Yeah, I think, 
um, I think we could t- probably take a lot, get a lot more educated in some of the soft skills because those are the things that help. And by soft skills, I mean our patient interview skills. You know, I always, um, I always say that anyone that's dealing with patients in any discipline probably should have been a psychologist first, and then, you know, uh, and then, and then, and then took the the path of medicine because. In so many areas of medicine, not just PT, we're trying to change behaviors and under trying to understand why the patient isn't doing something or maybe wants to do something but can't. Um, so taking time to interact with the patient, understand them, ask questions like, what, what do you think would stop you? You know, so these exercises are really important. People that do these exercises tend to have better outcomes than those that don't. Um, what do you think would get in your way of being able to do these exercises every day? Um, how likely do you think you are to actually be able to do these exercises? What do you think would be able to, to, to help you remember to do these exercises? Leave space for them to, if you don't think these exercises are valuable or beneficial, um, you know, why is that? So leave space for them to, to dialogue to maybe, maybe it's that they do think they're valuable, but you're talking to like a single mother who has so much to do. She's like, where in the world am I going to find 20 extra minutes to exercise, you know? And so I think having those conversations and getting better at those things, there's, there's a skill that can be developed, you know, that probably many people are familiar with called motivational interviewing. And, uh, you can get training in this. You can go to continuing education courses. There's some online courses. I think there's, um, I think that's one great skill that health coaches use to help patients change in health coaching. You're trying to change behaviors about diet, sleep, um, physical activity, these behaviors that we know are associated with health. And, uh, and so these coaches really leverage this motivational interviewing skills to help the patient figure out what are the motivations that they need to tap into to actually change those behaviors. So um, I just recommend in general, anyone that deals with patients, uh, trying to get them to do things that look for ways where you can improve your skills, maybe take some soft courses that help you uh, you know, learn how to be a good, uh, you know, to, to be able to utilize motivational interviewing a little bit better. Uh, so you can just dialogue with your patients and understand them a little bit better. And I think that what you mentioned about let them talk and asking their opinion about the exercise program that you're giving them is super important because sometimes they do understand that's important and they, they intend on doing, but they don't have time. So maybe you adapt and cut all the exercise, keep one that they might do, or like you have some room to work and, and have this open dialogue that you can really understand what's going on, what they are thinking, if they're going to really do it, or if they think it's not important, so they're not going to do it at all, and then you change your approach, but just being able to talk and understand their perspective, right? Yes, absolutely. Very important. And anything that we as therapists need to change our behaviors, um, in your opinion, to help those patients? Yeah, I think we focus on patients with behavior change, but 
the reality is that all humans, um, you know, behavior change is complex. And so even as clinicians, we get set in our own ways and we do things our own ways. We uh, are sometimes a little bit resistant or we can, we can be resistant. All of us can be resistant to hearing something different and being open to considering it, you know, um, I think that's a defense mechanism. You, you can certainly see that with controversial topics like politics or religion. Someone says something, you get defensive right away because that's, wait, that's not how I see things. Um, and it's a defense mechanism because if we just changed our mind about things all the time, we, um, you know, we it, it would be hard for us to, uh, you know, we kind of, we, we have a belief about something and it's become a belief over time. And now, and we have rationale to support that belief. We can have our minds change, but it usually is a process. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, you are, when you change someone's mind about something or when your mind changes, it's usually not, I'll tell you one thing and then boom, you change your mind because your, your brain doesn't work that way. Usually it's an iterative process of you trust me we've built a good rapport. I say a few things to you. We have some conversations. We, you know, slowly you start considering little pieces of it. And then that paradigm that you've built shifts. And eventually, if you do change your mind, it's usually an iterative process. So the first thing I would say is we have to be consistent with our message and don't give up. You know, you never know what your patient hears at one time. Every time they come in, continue that message, keep trying to provide, you know, good, um, solid rationale, but also build a rapport so that they can trust you and they are open to changing their minds about something. You know, for example, some patients come to physical therapy and they don't actually think physical therapy is going to work. You know, the, the doctor said, you have to go to physical therapy before you go get an MRI or before you go have surgery. So, in their minds, they're already thinking, well, my uncle had this and he needed an MRI or my mom had surgery and that's what fixed this. That's what I need. So I'm there and in my mind, I'm going to go through the motions, but I don't really believe that this works. You know, you don't want to shame that person. You don't want to do anything but uh, that that is negative. But, you know, building that rapport with them and continuously, you know, that, you know, sharing the research with them, maybe of the, these, look at this patient here in this clinic too, you know, I'm going to show you his story. He had the same thing that you did and he came in to physical therapy and he's actually didn't end up needing surgery. These little things that start changing their narrative usually take uh, a little bit of time and they take some trust building for that patient to let down their guard and consider a different perspective. And, and that doesn't just go for PT and patients. I think that goes for a lot of things. You know, if you think about when you've changed your mind about something, it's usually been from someone you trust and over time, you know, thinking about it, considering all the evidence, and then you slowly change your mind. So I would say that's the first thing. And very re much related to that is the this ability to trust our patients. I use this analogy a lot where I say, um, you know, if I had this sound in my car that uh, I didn't quite like and I thought something's wrong with this, I'm going to go and take it to the mechanic. And the mechanic spends like three minutes, comes back and says, hey, I looked at this. Uh, I don't think there's a problem with it. I think you're fine. 
um, you know, I might not even say anything to them. I think a lot of patients say that they're fine or they nod their head yes and no, but then they think something different when they leave, you know, because they don't feel like they can be honest. If I heard a mechanic say that to me, I probably would think I need a second opinion. How can in three minutes they have checked my car and I just, I, I don't feel, um, I don't feel good about them having really, I don't have a satisfactory explanation for that problem. But if I went in there and they spent 30 minutes, 40 minutes, they did all these things, they checked everything, they sat down and said, hey, I've looked at everything that could be happening here. Here's what I've looked at. This is, all of these things are, I think are fine. They're, I can't see anything here that should be making this noise. I think it's okay. You know, I might leave there being okay with hearing that noise. It's not a big deal because I've gotten an explanation that makes sense to me. And so that communication piece, that finding ways, you know, patients have that sort of defense or people have that sort of defense to talk with them, open up to them, build that trust, make them feel heard, make them feel listened to, uh, I think goes goes a long ways in you being able to sell because you're selling the value of, I want you to take this much time to do your exercises every day because I think it's going to lead to this outcome. Well, they, first of all, they have to believe that and, you know, be, be motivated by that. So that's the first step I think is, is, is adapting that. And then understanding just the, the challenges and the comp- complexity of a lot of that behavior change. Yes. And as you said, I think it just takes time and you have to be patient. It's not going to be on the first time that you talk to the patient, especially the ones that are there just for the MRI, which is very common. So it's not like you're just saying, yep, you're wrong. That's the, you know, we can help you and you're going to change. You have to win them over. It takes time and work and patience. Yeah. And it's hard because we get burned out sometimes, you know, we Mm -hmm. have a lot of patients and you, you know, to sit back and remember, like I've seen 10 patients today, but I'm the only therapist that this patient has seen. And how do I, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I, you know, you, it, it, uh, it can be easy to get burnt out and not listen as well and be tempted to, you know, just kind of move through the, through the motions. And I think it's, uh, it's imperative and it's hard. Some days are better than others to really remember, you know, why you're there and why the patient is there. And time, the time constraints are very hard because, you have so many things to do in that short amount of time that's hard to take the time and really have good conversations. So I think that's another challenge that we face. Yes, agreed. And, and what do you think are some of like patient-related factors that enable this implementation of what we call the high-value PT, according to those, some of the papers I was reading that you sent me? So what are the, what do you think are these uh, factors? Yeah, you know, high value PT is, is always challenging or just high value care, I think is challenging um, because what is value? Value is what you get for, you know, what you pay for essentially. And so if you pay for very little and you get a lot, that's like a lot of value, um, but when we talk about care value, you know, the part of it's the patient's perception. So like, you know, am I getting a big benefit from this? Then they see that as value. If, if I'm coming to physical therapy and nothing's changing, nothing's improving, I have to spend all this time going there. 
um, but I'm not getting better or I don't think it's going to work. That seems like low value care for me. And so because value is tied to perception uh, to some degree, you know, if the patient is like, this is great value that I feel so much better, that's, that's a big piece of it. If you can show them, look how much you've improved. Um, I think a lot of that comes down to also our interactions and, and that patient's perception of you and, and your services. So I think it's important for us to, when patients come in, the patient factors that lead to that is having them have a buy-in into your, um, into what you're doing, into the purpose of what you're doing, how it's going to lead to better outcomes. You know, we like to rely on the evidence, but the reality is that how we function as people and, and how we believe things, we're highly emotional. That's, you know, we think emotionally first and then we think, um, you know, rationally. That's just, uh, that's how we are. We, we, we like to think it's the opposite way. Like we all like to be rational people, but the reality is that most of the evidence shows that we're highly emotional people first. And then, you know, we, we look at the rational aspect. And so stories, anecdotes, we don't like those as researchers because they, um, but those things are the things that connect with patients more than the research. You can highlight the research, but pointing out the stories of here's these individuals that did really well where they can see a case. That's why a relative that tells you I needed an MRI and did this versus me showing you a study, you know, that relative is probably going to win because there's this connection there. There's an emotional connection. Um, so trying to read patients, I mean, you, everyone's probably seen these, you have patients come in and, and, you know, some communicate better than others, but trying to understand where they're coming from, why they're there. Do they really buy into this? Do they really think physical therapy is going to work? I've just been at, you know, I, I would just ask patients sometimes, like, do you, do you think this is really going to work? Like, what do you, what about this do you think is going to work? Like have the freedom to engage with them so you can, you know, maybe understand a little bit how you can, uh, work with them. But then that communication piece leads to the high, high value, what we call high value, you know, things like, um, like imaging. We know we shouldn't get MRIs for everyone and having that conversation with patients when they see high value as getting an MRI and I see high value as not getting an MRI. Well, how do we, how do we marry that up? You know, I have to convince this individual and, you know, um, well, let me just tell you about MRIs. If I just took 100 people off the street with no back pain and gave them an MRI, we would probably find some sort of uh, finding in there, uh, maybe a herniated disc, um, something that, that is wrong in people with no pain at all, and the majority of them, probably 60 70% of them would have something on that finding. So we just have to be careful. It doesn't mean that there isn't something there and it can't be helpful, but in one study – you know, they followed patients that had these herniations and they took MRIs periodically for a seven year period. And they wanted to know if, if your pain got worse, did the herniation on the MRI look worse? And if your pain got better, did the herniation look better? And there was like absolutely no correlation. So some patients whose pain got worse, their, the herniation actually got absolved and, and kind of went away. And then some patients that the pain got, um, you know, got better, that the herniation looked a little bit worse. And so 
having some anecdotes and stories where you can lump in the, lit, the, the, the research, but, you know, talk them and tell them why, because they, they might see it as, well, you're just trying to keep me away from, they don't understand it. Why would you keep me away from getting an MRI? Why would you not let me have surgery? Um, so that communication is critical in providing high value care because studies show that the reason why GPs and primary care providers order lots of things is because they're trying to make the patients happy. The patient is really unhappy. Okay. Getting an MRI is going to make you happy, even though it leads to all these other risk factors. And so, um, getting them to buy into high value care does take a lot of consideration for how they see things and being able to talk to them. You can't just say an MRI is not good for you. You know, they're just going to see that as you're, as you don't care, you're not listening, you don't understand. Um, and that makes it challenging. Yes, absolutely. You are just, uh, they feel like you're against them. So you're not playing on the same team. Yeah, uh, exactly. And any tips on how to engage the patients um, and educate them on the importance of the, the, the home exercise program adherence? Yeah, I mean, that's good. I think a lot of what I've said is uh, along those lines too, making that connection. But really try to understand, you know, what what I learned, I remember when I went through my fellowship training is there's lots of different ways to prescribe exercises. You, If you go to GP or primary care, a lot of times you just get a pamphlet, right? Here's a little paper with some education. Um, you, you know, maybe the best thing to do is let me show you a couple of exercises. Let's have you do them right here in the clinic. Show me how you do these things so you can help correct them. See how you feel. This didn't make your pain any worse. Um, this is how you can improve it. So have them do them in the clinic. Check their symptoms after they do. Uh, they perform some of the exercises. And then if you do have literature on some of these things, like let's say knee osteoarthritis, for example, we have a lot of evidence that exercise is good for knee osteoarthritis. It's helpful, but there's also a cognitive dissonance there because you think my joint is frail. I have this disease, arth you know, arthritis, and now doing exercise, isn't that going to make it worse? Where that's where anecdotes from the evidence potentially, like little decision aids or little laminated cards that break down patient friendly. Uh, you know, have you seen some of those uh, whiteboard videos on exercise on YouTube? There's some really great ones there that are patient education on like pain neuroscience, things that break them down mm -hmm. for patients. Mm -hmm. That type of level of education that shows that, you know, the evidence doesn't actually shows that doing exercise is actually better. It's not going to make your arthritis any worse. It's actually probably going to prevent the degeneration of arthritis. And here's why. And in these studies here, people that did these these exercises more often, so if you do this twice a day, they had better outcomes, their pain went down even more compared to those that only did it once a day or two or three times a week only. And so connecting the evidence and anecdotal sort of uh, uh, pieces, they're having them perform the exercises there. So if they have any questions and then helping them also come up with, you know, talk about the barriers, what are your... What's going to stop you when you get home tonight? What's going to stop you from doing these exercises tonight? What's going to stop you tomorrow? Um, okay, well, how, what can you do differently to, you know, help them come up with SMART goals, you know, that are measurable, that um, not just I'm going to do these exercises, but when am I going to do these exercises? 
how many of the exercises am I going to do? You know, you need to have a more specific plan. So helping them kind of work through that uh, and set up a specific plan for how that's going to happen. Okay, so I'm going to see you next week. Here's this little checklist. I want to, you know, I would like to see all of these things filled out by then. Um, so, so being more specific, probably with our plans, highlighting the importance of the exercises, not just doing them. You're seeing me for 30, 45 minutes, but in a 24 hour day, but outside these 30 to 45 minutes, you, most of your life, 99% of the rest of your life is you on your, is, is on your own. So you've got to have a plan. I can't just do this on, on my own. This little bit of time is not going to do this. You want to get better. These things can work. And this intervention is so powerful that people that do this actually, uh, many of them, a large major, a large proportion of them don't end up needing surgery. Like this intervention can actually stop you from needing surgery. Like highlight a lot of the benefits. I think we need to have a lot more of these engaging conversations to help, uh, help patients understand why, and then help them identify their own barriers. That's where the motivational interviewing comes into place. And so I think doing all of those things are needed, just like with any other intervention. You know, you want someone to buy into taking a medication or getting a, a, a certain uh, vaccine or whatever it is, they need to understand, you know, uh, a little bit better uh, the rationale behind it. Yeah, and I think hold them accountable as well. So like if they're going to do the exercise, they know you're going to ask them, how did it go? Like, did you have pain? And then they know that I had many patients that they were like, I knew you're going to ask me. So I wrote down or like a pay attention because they know that you're going to ask. So they, they pay attention better to what they are doing to answer your questions. Exactly. And any thoughts on technology to help in this process? Yeah, I think technology is evolving and technology really helps with behavior change. Like, for example, you know, I have a Apple watch and um, it's amazing how, you know, I can track my exercise levels and I, it works because I'll look at it and say, okay, I need to, you know, maybe I need to go uh, walk a little bit more or do something a little bit more. I want to close my rings every day. So having a reminder of what you do, I think is helpful. And there are apps and programs out there that send reminders to do your exercise every day. So I know several exercise programs that, that do that. And I think that's really powerful because you're getting a reminder, Hey, did you do your exercise today? And you have to answer yes or no. Um, that report, if I tell my patient, when you come back next week, you know, I'm going to see this report of all the exercises that you did. So it's not just you saying that you did them. I'm actually going to be able to read this dashboard. Um, I think it's helpful. These remi- we, you know, the 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 evidence shows that having those reminders actually does help to change behaviors. And so, leveraging technology to engage with you. Hey, you said you wanted to do this today. Uh, you know, you said you wanted to do. You know, meet this goal. I'm just helping you do it. Here's your little reminder. I think those things do make a big difference and help people uh, reach some of these goals. Yes, and that's a great way to do it instead of just giving them a printout with the exercise. It just involves a little more effort. You have to have an app. You have to, you know, I saw some apps that, like, if you do that, you gain 
I don't know, points. And then you have like these medals and like stuff that are silly, but like people, like they, they want to achieve that is some, something that motivates them. So I think that's yeah. helpful as well. They have these motion capture uh, apps. So they, it actually watches how you do it. So you, it's hard to kind of cheat. You actually have to do it because it's recording and look, measuring the compliance, which I think is really fascinating and really uh, interesting. Um, they did one study where they put, um, you know, they put these devices in, uh, in, in, um, I don't remember all the details, but I think it was patients after knee replacement or they had a brace or whatever, and they hid these little, um, uh, motion sensors in the device. And then they asked the patients, how much activity are you doing? And then they were able to track the activity on the sensor and they found a big disparity between people said they were doing a lot and then <laughs> they actually weren't doing very much. So I think sometimes, you know, uh, our, our recall is poor and we think we did more than we actually did. And then you have proof that you, <laughs> you didn't do it as much. Exactly. Um, then before we transition to our final questions, anything else that you want to add about everything we just talked no, I think it's just, this is just really fascinating. It's an area that I'm uh, spending a little bit more research on is, uh, or focus on is just trying to, looking at the connection between a lot of health behaviors and chronic pain. And so we've been using health coaches um, and uh, in a lot more of the things that were interventions that we're doing. But I think uh, just, you know, the, the the biggest takeaway, I think, is just remembering that you know, humans are complex, human behavior is complex, and trying to understand that a little bit better, um, I think will, uh, will yield, uh, you know, a lot for you and, and uh, for anyone looking to improve outcomes with their patients. And any resource of information that you recommend for people that want to learn more about the topic? Um. I think, you know, without naming any specific names, I think there's some great courses out there on, um, you know, uh, mindfulness interventions. I know there's the Mint Network, which is uh, where they have certified uh, motivational interviewing network trainers. I think that's what it stands for. I'm not sure. Um, I know there's several online courses. Well, like MedBridge has a lot of um, really good courses on that. And um, uh, so I think that would be maybe the first thing I'm looking to look at CU courses, or maybe think instead of an intervention, think a lot of PTs don't think about taking motivational interviewing, communication, therapeutic alliance courses. You're always thinking about like, how do I learn the next new intervention? And so I would challenge you to think maybe it's less about the next new intervention. And, um, and it's more about improving your communication skills and improving your, interview skills with patients and how you talk to them. So I would just challenge you. There's lots of resources online for those types of courses. Um, there's lots of great little patient educational, these whiteboard videos. Sometimes I just print those out on a QR code on a, uh, there's one about opioids, about, uh, you know, pain neuroscience, how, how pain works, print them out on little um, business cards. And when patients come in, you can say, Hey, take this home, watch this video. Let me know if you have any questions, you know, uh, when you come back next time. Little things like that. Yeah, that's a great idea. And um, what would be the best advice you can give to clinicians that are starting their careers? 
I would say along the lines of what I just said is that when you're starting your career, things are challenging and uh, you're trying to learn all the best interventions. And after practicing for over 20 years, what I would say is one of the best interventions that you, one of the best skills that you can learn is communication, listening, uh, things like that. And so you're going to be the new intervention courses are going to be very sexy and they're going to be something that you're drawn to. But I would challenge you uh, to look at uh, courses that are going to help you improve your communication uh, skills because you can have the best. I have always said, you know, what if we did a study where patients came in and they got evidence-based treatments, but the clinicians were just kind of rude and, um, you know, didn't listen to them much, but they got the right intervention. And then this other group came in and maybe we just ultrasounded their back, but we gave them milk and cookies. And it was like this great music and everyone was just really nice and kind. It would just be interesting what the outcomes were, you know, in this group that is uh, getting the right intervention, but there's like no therapeutic alliance, no connection. You're just kind of rude. And this other group, um, and I think we, we under, uh, you, you know, we, we undermine sometimes the uh, value of good, strong patient, you know, uh, communication uh, skills, our ability to listen, our ability to ask good questions, our ability to understand where the patient's at. So I would just challenge you to look for some of those courses along with the intervention courses as well and improve your skills. I think that's going to take you a lot further in the long run. Yeah, like right after we graduate, I had that on my mind. I wanted to do all the different courses and know all the approaches. I wanted to know the fix for every little thing. And we have these thoughts in what we think it's going to be like. And then you see that um, the importance of really communicating, because if you don't, it doesn't matter how much you know, how many techniques you know, or whatever the technical um, things are, it's not going to be as helpful as you think it is. So that's very important. Agreed. Agreed. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, Dan, if people want to learn more about you or uh, reach out, is there a way they can find you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and if you just Google me, you'll probably see my uh, website with the, the, the USU. I think my email might be listed on there as well. But um, yeah, reach out. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us. It was a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it was great to talk with you. And thanks for the opportunity, Mariana. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also, on the show notes, 
you can find the guest's contact information and favorite resources, links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel where you can watch the whole episode, and our website where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening and until next time.